Hey guys, this is Hannah, and before the episode starts, I wanted to issue a quick trigger warning for this episode. There will be some discussion of suicide, so if that is a trigger for you or upsetting in any way, just wanted to give you guys a heads up, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Senior Detectives Podcast, a cozy corner to talk about mysteries of all kinds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Today we will be covering The Thursday Murder Club. It is a book written by Richard Osman. We'll start today by reading the preface to The Thursday Murder Club. And before I get going, uh, it seems obvious, but we have to give it spoiler warnings. <laughs> We're going to be talking about who done it. So if you haven't read this, tune out now yeah i mean you can listen to it we'll tell you what happens if you want to not read the book but like the book is good so you should go read it <laughs> yes you absolutely should okay it begins killing someone is easy hiding the body now that's usually the hard part that's how you get caught i was lucky enough to stumble upon the right place though the perfect place really i come back to it from time to time just to make sure everything is still safe and sound it always is and I suppose it always will be. Sometimes I'll have a cigarette, which I know I shouldn't, but it's my only vice. Such a good preface. <laughs> it is such a good opening. I was instantly hooked, just instantly sucked in. Um, instantly. It sets the tone very well. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, so I'm going to read just a brief sort of synopsis of the book just so everybody can get on the same page about the general plot lines uh, so that when we just dive in, everything's not totally new to you. Just after a new development is announced at the Cooper's Chase Retirement Village, the lead builder, Tony, is killed. And soon after, the landowner, Ian, is killed as well. Four retirees, Elizabeth, Ron, Ibrahim, and Joyce, the Thursday Murder Club, investigate the murders. Then, when construction begins on the new development, an extra unmarked set of bones dating from the 70s is found at the graveyard on the land. So, we got three murders. Three! You thought you were just getting one. You I thought know, it was just more a than singular murder. See, it's so great when you're reading it, you know, because obviously none of that is divulged on the cover or anything like that. Because um, Tony, the lead builder, dies pretty pretty soon on in the yeah. book. And so you're thinking like, okay, this is his murder mystery. We're solving mm -hmm. his murder. And boy, do things veer yeah. left quickly. <laughs> you think it's just going to be about him. But nope. It just oh, no. keeps coming. The shots keep coming. <laughs> okay. Yes, they do. So I have a couple of snippets from the very first chapter. The book goes back and forth between being written by, I guess, our main character. Her name is Joyce. She lives in the retirement village of Cooper's Chase, where this book is set in Kent, England, and she starts writing a diary. So some of the chapters are written in her diary in her hand, and then some of them are written in third person 
on whoever Mr. Osmond wants to be talking about in that chapter. So I've got some snippets from the very first chapter to kind of set up how this whole story begins, at least when it comes to Joyce. Well, let's start with Elizabeth, shall we? And see where that gets us? I know who she was, of course. Everybody here knows Elizabeth. She has one of the three-bedroom flats in Larkin Court. I was at lunch, this is two or three months ago, and it must have been a Monday because we were having shepherd's pie. (laughs) Elizabeth... (laughs) So cozy. (laughs) I know, so cozy. Um, Elizabeth said she could see that I was eating, but she wanted to ask me a question about knife wounds. If it wasn't inconvenient... I said, not at all, of course, please, or words to that effect. She opened a manila folder, and I saw some type sheets and the edges of what looked like old photographs. Elizabeth asked me to imagine that a girl had been stabbed with a knife. I asked what sort of knife she had been stabbed with, and Elizabeth said, probably just a normal kitchen knife. Then she asked me to imagine this girl had been stabbed three or four times, just under the breastbone, in and out, in and out, very nasty, but without severing an artery. She was very quiet about the whole thing because people were eating and she does have some boundaries. So there I was imagining stab wounds and Elizabeth asked me how long it would take the girl to bleed to death. I asked what the girl had weighed. The girl had been 46 kilos. So I guessed that unattended she would probably die in about 45 minutes. Well, quite Joyce, she said, and then had another question. What if the girl had had medical assistance? I had seen a lot of stab wounds in my time. My job wasn't all sprained ankles. So I said then, well, she wouldn't die at all. Elizabeth was nodding away and said that was precisely what she had told Ibrahim, although I didn't know Ibrahim at the time. It hadn't seemed at all right to Elizabeth, and her view was that the boyfriend had killed her. I know this is still often the case. You read about it. I think before I moved in, I might have found this whole conversation unusual, but it is pretty par for the course once you get to know everyone here. I was glad to have helped Elizabeth in my small way, so I decided I might ask a favor. I asked if there was any way I could take a look at the picture of the corpse, just out of professional interest. (laughs) Elizabeth beamed, the way people around here beam when you ask to look at pictures of their grandchildren graduating. She slipped a letter-sized photocopy out of her folder, laid it face down in front of me, and told me to keep it, as they all had copies. I told her that was very kind of her, and she said not at all, but she wondered if she could ask me one final question. Of course, I said. Then she said, are you ever free on Thursdays? And that, believe it or not, was the first I had heard of Thursdays. Such a good introduction to both of these characters. It is. It's so good. And an introduction to the Thursday Murder Club. To the Thursday Murder Club. Yeah. So you meet Elizabeth and Joyce here. And even after there's this tiny amount of time with them, I feel like you get such a clear idea of both of these women. Because Joyce is, you know, she's a former nurse and she has a very innocent air about Mm her. She's very open, approachable. Yes. And but yet she does have like an interest in like the more morbid things. She (laughs) She specifically asks for pictures of a corpse uh, (laughs) that she has only just learned about. Yeah, in such a cute old lady way. (laughs) Yes, in such a like, oh, well, if it's not too much trouble, I would really like to see. Um, And Mm -hmm. and you you get Elizabeth's reaction of she's just delighted that she asked. (laughs) Yes. Just thrilled that she has asked. Yeah. And Elizabeth, you learn basically nothing about her past except that she was a 
secret agent or something. I don't know. She, <laughs> you can only yeah, guess. She, she was like an upper level agent of some kind. I don't know if she was in like really high up in the police or if she was like an investigator or, you know, worked for the government. Like she clearly, you learn little tiny tidbits, but it's nothing ever specific. No. You mostly just see her skill set and how she uses it and have to make your assumptions about what she did for a living. Yeah. And whatever it was, she's was very good at it. She's a very manipulative person. Um, but in an endearing way. I mean, she's just, you know, she's keeping her life alive. Yeah, she's keeping it going. It's very important to her. She she regularly tests her own memory. Oh, yeah. Which is such a, I loved this little, because it, it brought her to life even more for me, is she's living in a retirement village and watching the people around her sort of slowly lose their cognitive abilities and their memories. Yeah. And, and so she writes down a question in like a notebook two weeks ahead of time but like mm -hmm. she writes one down every day and like, and then two weeks later she has to try and answer it um so weeks have, will have gone by she won't necessarily remember what she wrote and it'll be something very specific to her day like yeah. how much did your grocery bill cost this day yeah what was the license plate number on the van you saw yeah. Things that I would never even remember. No, <laughs> things that you would never make an effort to remember or pay attention to even. Um, mm -hmm. And she's constantly quizzing herself on these things. Um, so yeah, that all gives you a very good idea of who she is and her motivations. And she's she's definitely the leader, the big mm -hmm. ringleader of the Thursday Murder Club. Yeah, she's central to everyone. Yes, she actually formed the club with her her good friend Penny who was a former police detective uh, and I think is a, one of the bigger motivations behind Joyce sort of really being aware of her own mental faculties um, because Penny yeah. is essentially unresponsive at this point. She is bedridden. Um, she's not active. She can't really speak anymore. Um, so she's kind of just on life support. She's awake and can listen, but that's about all the communication she does. And they're not sure if she can actually understand what's being said to her. Right. It's it's all just a, we hope she can. But yeah, so Elizabeth goes and visits Penny quite often in her room and and talks to her and just to keep her involved in, in the murder club updates and all that, whether Penny can understand it or not. It's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So let's set up kind of where this takes place because Penny is not actually in the same retirement well, she is in the retirement village with everyone else, but she's in like a separate nursing home section. Mm -hmm. So it takes place in Cooper's Chase, um, which is a luxury retirement village in the countryside of Kent, England. And it was built like around a an old convent of the Sisters of the Holy Church. Uh, and there is just outside of the church, or I guess somewhere near the church, up on a hill is... A graveyard where all of the former nuns, uh, as they passed away, they were put at rest here in this graveyard. It's called the Garden of Eternal Rest, I think is the name. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's this quaint little church, a little graveyard next to it. The convent, I think, closed in the 60s, right? Yes, I believe it was the 60s. And then I guess as the nuns got older and passed away, they were put in the in the graveyard, but nobody's, you know, nobody's occupied it for a long time and nobody new has been buried there in quite some time. So that's your 
general setting. So where Penny is located is the nursing home for the village, which was originally a voluntary hospital that the nuns were controlling in. So it began in 1841. I wrote down a little passage that pretty much sums up Willows. Um, It's pretty grim (laughs) warning. Mm. So it's a character that we'll talk about a little later, Donna. She walked down quiet beige corridors with dim strip lighting and seaside watercolors lining the walls. It all carried an appalling weight, and the hopeful sprigs of flowers on cheap MDF side tables were powerless against it. Willows was a prison from which no escape was possible, where release could only mean one thing. Oof. <laughs> it's, it's rough. The language there is so descriptive, and I feel it like is. you can picture this place so clearly. Yeah. it's So I have a... Well, I had a great aunt that lived in a retirement village, and it was definitely a luxury place, and it was... So cool. The community was so vibrant. They would have things going on all the time, like classes you could take, like dances in the courtyard, you know. You mm-hmm. know, everyone was would get along and have little clicks and it was really cool. But, you know, it is a place where people go towards the end of their life. So it can get rather morbid. And I think yeah. Richard Osmond does such a good job of keeping that theme throughout the entire book. Yes, it's laced through the whole story. Um, but it's somehow with this place being the setting and for a lot of the content of this book being more grim, it is genuinely delightful and it cozy. Is. And <laughs> I just want to be here with these people. <laughs> you know, I'm like, can I join your group, please? I really just want to <laughs> go hang out with the Thursday Murder Club and then go have... A cottage pie at the end of the uh-huh. day. And a cup of <laughs> Eat tea. Eat their baked goods. and <laughs> Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the other two members of the Thursday Murder Club that we pretty quickly get introduced to is um, Ron Ritchie. He is a former trade union leader. Um, so a bit of a feisty history. He's... Mm-hmm. Um, quick to anger and quick to jump into action, but also has a side of him that it very much believes in what he's fighting for and backs up his position. You know, he doesn't just do it for the sake of doing it. He does it because he cares. Right. Yes. He cares in a much louder way than most people. We all know somebody like this, right? We We all, we all have somebody who is feistier than the average person. Yes, but in an in like a very in nice a good way. way. And you love yes. them for it. Yeah. Right. And then the final member is a man named Ibrahim, who is a former psychologist, uh, big time buddies with Ron. Uh, they are often paired together. And he is the perfect counterbalance to Ron. He's soft spoken and calm and does things with thought and purpose. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he really does balance out Ron's kind of fiery side quite well. Yeah. They note that he loves being needed. He lives for being needed. So Mm. you think Mm -hmm. he kind of misses his glory days of being a psychiatrist and he keeps his old chair and he keeps in touch with some of his clients, but he is very analytical and kind I think he actually genuinely cares, just like Ron, but in a very different way. <laughs> right. So those are our main, main, main characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also pretty quickly meet a man named Ian Ventham. Boo. 
is just <laughs> the most likable man you'll ever meet. Wow, he's like my favorite character. <laughs> um, no, he is terrible. You You actually read parts of the story from his perspective. So you not mm-hmm. only are introduced to him and and quickly learn how just vile he is, but you you fundamentally understand how vile he is because you're hearing his thoughts. Yes, and major props to Richard Osman again for his ability to write from the perspective of a huge narcissist. He does such a good job pinpointing the things that this man would care about and how he thinks of himself, which is in the highest regard. He thinks literally a quote from the book is that he's the cleverest person he knows. And it almost feels unfair sometimes to others. Yeah. (laughs) It's always the people who think that who Mm -hmm. like are not the cleverest person in the room, because I feel like truly clever people are the people who keep their mouths shut and watch and listen and process. Uh, He's not that person. He is the person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room and boy, it's just done so well. You just immediately dislike him. So he is like kind of a jack of all trades, but he's a real estate guy for the purpose of, you know, this story and he owns Cooper's chase. So he's the guy that developed it and he wants to expand and he's Mm -hmm. got this contractor. His name is Tony Curran And he decides in his head the first time we meet him that he is going to fire Tony. Yes. They have been working together for a long time uh, and have both made quite a bit of money off of this whole Cooper's Chase project and are looking to make a lot more money with the expansion, uh, which they're calling the Woodlands. But yeah, he decides, I'm just going to cut Tony out. It's time he owns, Tony owns 25% of this you know, this, the income coming in from this new project. And I'm just, I'm going to cut him out. And, uh, he's just motivated by greed. I mean, it's just pure, purely greed, no loyalty at all. Yeah. And even in his head, when he's thinking of it, he thinks to himself, Tony could kill me when I tell him this news, but he says the risk is not as, you know, it's a very small percentage and the reward being 25% of this development is too great. So he's going to take the risk. Which what a what a way to what a way. analyze your life and, and make decisions. <laughs> God. First off, to get wrapped up in someone that you think might kill you if they get some bad news. And then to be like, hmm, but it's all right. It's probably not going to happen. Oh, it probably won't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we meet Ian and he is on his way out to a farm like some some privately owned land uh that is next to where he would like to expand where he wants the woodlands to go um and he visits a father and daughter an older gentleman probably in his 80s or so and then his daughter who's in her early to mid 50s Mm -hmm. is gordon and karen playfair and they own this land and i have uh ian is driving out to try and talk them into selling and he thinks at first that he's going to be able to, to seduce her because obviously, why wouldn't he be able to do that? Who wouldn't want me? <laughs> Who wouldn't want me? Yes, exactly. But he thinks to himself, she must be 50, same age as him, different for women though, and he has a strict upper age limit of 25. 
God, but he's just he's bleh. married. <laughs> I hate him so much. I hate him so oh, much too. Gosh. And Karen, the daughter that he, you know, tries this on, basically doesn't buy into it at all, which is no. okay. She still is on his side. Yeah, so she uh, she is totally game for selling the property. She doesn't really have a whole lot of attachment to it and not out of greed necessarily, um, but just I don't think she plans on living on the property once her dad passes away. And yeah. she's just looking at, okay, well, I'm going to have this asset that I could potentially sell for a lot of money. Why wouldn't I, you know? Yeah. Which I get, you know, and her dad is just holding out. Gordon does not want to sell. He is not interested. He hates Ian. He Which, doesn't want anything to do with fair. Ian. I totally back this man up. Team Gordon. Team Gordon. <laughs> he is just absolutely not and not budging. And so as Karen walks Ian out, she kind of, ins- you know, insinuates that like, I'm, I'm going to try and talk him down. I'm going to try and get him to come around and I'll see what I can do. And maybe we can come to an agreement um, if I can talk my dad into into selling. So that's sort of where we leave off with them. And Ian thinks he's got it made. He's like, cool, I'm going to get this property. No problem. All I got to do now is go talk to some old people. It doesn't even matter what they say to me because I'm going to do what I want anyway. But contractually, I have to go talk to them and then I'm going to be fine. I got this. It's just like the last thing on his to do list in addition to buying the Playfair property, he will be his new expansion will mean that the the graveyard, the Garden of Eternal Rest next to the convent will have to be excavated and moved. And the people resting there will have to be moved elsewhere to another final resting place, hopefully a final, final resting place. Right. It's just horrible. It's just horrible. And you can tell that he doesn't care at all about no. moving this and they're like Mm-mm. nuns that were in this convent and it's this very peaceful little graveyard and he just doesn't care about them at all there's no bone in his body that actually cares it's just he knows everything's in motion i've got all all the legal permits i need my last thing i do is i have to notify the residents that live nearby that this big development and expansion is happening And so he heads over to Cooper's Chase to let them know that's going to be happening. And uh, they don't take it particularly well. No, especially Ron, who likes to make a stink. Yeah, Ron (laughs) is like, perfect. I love to get fussed up about something. And especially it's like, he's not super invested in it, but he's, he can tell that it's like for a good cause. Obviously, Mm. like, it's not the right thing to do to excavate this graveyard for really no reason it's i I imagine in my head it's quite a small little plot and would be quite simple to just leave alone yeah just build around it just like they did with the church it's it's still a retirement village like this new place is still going to be a retirement village so i feel like a historic church and graveyard would it's it's rural england those are probably like everywhere yeah (laughs) They are, yes. I just, yeah, it's it's strange that he's so dead set on it. But um, yeah. yeah, Ron jumps into action, immediately f- fires up all about it. And um, a gentleman shows up uh, named Father Matthew Mackey, a priest, and also voices his concerns saying, you know, like, you know, he's kind of speaking on behalf of these nuns that are buried yeah, there. Maybe don't. Yeah, maybe don't. Maybe leave them alone. Maybe just, you know. 
Don't dig up graves. <laughs> these these women like served God and treated sick people and in general were like a force for good for the most part. There's no need that we need to be disturbing them. It just just build around it, which is a very valid point. It is, totally. Um, but so after the meeting, which to be honest is kind of fruitless on everyone else's part, because Ian's gonna do what he wants. But after the meeting, he decides, oh, this is a great time to tell Tony that I'm cutting him out of our expansion deal because it's in public and he's afraid that Tony's going to kill him. So, And around all these old people, surely he won't murder me on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) Um, But what he was not ready for was that Joyce, Ron, and Ron's son Jason, who you meet... Um, are all watching this go down. They are, they're sitting quite near them and they overhear Ian firing Tony and they hear they're having a, like a low volume argument with each other and um, it's clearly nasty. Yeah. And they, they see Tony storm off in anger and are like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. What was that all about? What was that all about? So, yeah, you've met Jason, uh, which is Ron's son. He is he's a former professional boxer and uh, I guess retired fairly early in his career. He he was good, but it just is a tough sport. Your body can only take so much boxing. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. So he he's retired and has kind of made a career out of professional like celebrity endorsements and Mm -hmm. appearances and tiny little like tv cameos and stuff like that so he's 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 making the most out of out of what he has and he's doing pretty well at it he's he's pretty successful honestly if i was like you know getting invited to chopped and dancing with the stars i'd be like okay i made it (laughs) right so he's he's a good character he's fun to meet and then Story rolls on to Tony's perspective. So I really like the chapter from Tony's perspective. There's only one of them. And you learn like a little bit about him, even though it's pretty short. Basically, he was into drug dealing, but like at a very high caliber. He was not a cool dude. He's like murdered a couple people, but he found out that he can make money living the straight life doing contracting work for Ian. So that's what he's up to now. Um, but when he learns that Ian's cutting him out of the deal, he immediately goes, I've decided to kill him. Right. He's, he's driving home like, all right, I have to murder this man. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like Ian suspected. Just, just, just exactly like he what he thought was going to happen. Tony gets home and is pretty decided that he's going to yeah. have to murder Ian. And that's, that's the only way forward. Yeah. And in his mind... He says, even the most common rational man snaps. So he is totally justified in his own mind. He does not think he's the villain, just like Ian doesn't think he's the villain. But they're both just doing, just decided to do really horrible things. Yeah, they just acting in their own best interests 100% at any cost, pretty much. But yeah, as as Tony's narrating his his plans to kill Ian and he's walking around his home, he gets bludgeoned on the back of the head and dies he is murdered in his own home very abruptly and you don't see he never sees the person nope 
and he thinks on his way down, you can't win them all, Tony. It's such a good, like, what a final thought. I know, isn't it? What a final thought. <laughs> and I love that the chapter is told from his perspective. So you know what happens. Like, you don't hear about it later. You get, like, the initial thought process. And I love that you're, in, in your head, you're like, okay, so the murdered person is going to be Ian. And we're going to watch the Thursday Murder Club figure that out. But yes. then he gets murdered. Yeah, he's literally, he's literally <laughs> plotting the murder. And you're like, oh, okay, we're going to see this play out. And then, no, like by the time that chapter ends, this man is dead. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's such it's such a twist. And the killer leaves a an old photograph uh, on the counter next to Tony's body. And it is a picture of Tony and Jason, Ron's son, and a third man named Bobby Tanner. And it is back from, so they were all sort of working together in the old days, dealing and selling drugs. And um, they went their separate ways. They all kind of got out for one reason or another. Jason went on to have a boxing career. Tony went on to be a contractor. And and they both sort of lost touch with, with Bobby Tanner. Don't yeah. really know what happened to him. He went off on his own and has kind of dropped contact with them disappeared off the map mm -hmm. which honestly is smarter than becoming a celebrity <laughs> right <laughs> like you're so easily trackable <laughs> mm -hmm. or maybe it's smart because celebrities don't get in trouble mm. <laughs> uh, yeah that's a good point either way so yeah the next chapter is um we are introduced to the police who are going to be working on tony's case so we have police constable donna defritis Freitas, perhaps. Um, she's a young policewoman, late 20s. And she's just moved from London, um, from the police in London. And she's running away from her problems because... Get it, girl. <laughs> who doesn't? Been there. <laughs> she has taken this job out in the countryside to run away from an ex-boyfriend. She really... is not working the big cases here. She is... Like, the job she had today... Uh, was she went to give a, a security how to stay safe talk to the elder people at Cooper's Chase. <laughs> yeah, not exactly catching serial killers. No, she's she's not on the big cases. Definitely like low man on the totem pole, as it were. Yeah. Uh, but her boss, whose name is Chris, is the head investigator on Tony's murder case. Chris is... He's good at his job and he loves his job, but he's very insecure. They hint at the fact that he's got an eating disorder. Um, mm -hmm. He's like longing for, honestly, to me, it's a little unrealistic, like this fantasy life of this perfect woman and perfect family. And he's super thin and, you know. Mm -hmm. It's it's a quintessential fantasy that he has that's yes. just like, it's so perfected that I don't know if it's anybody's actual fantasy, but yeah, right. he has this mental image of what he wants his life to be. And yeah. yeah, he he's lonely and just doesn't really know how to really get his shit together and, and make what he wants happen. So he's right. just kind of in like a stuck place in his life, but yeah, very good investigator. But at this point, Donna is not even on his radar. <laughs> yeah, no, she <laughs> like doesn't even know her new, name. <laughs> she's just the new, the new girl at the office uh, who they were like, just go talk to the old people about security issues. Yeah. <laughs> so he pretty quickly 
gets himself swindled by the Thursday Murder Club. Yeah, they both. It's do. pretty. It's pretty <laughs> great to watch it unfold. So he heads over to Cooper's Chase. He wants to talk to Ron, who overheard Ian and Tony arguing, and interview him as a witness. and And Ibrahim is there with him, and he's he's asking them questions about the case. And Ron puts on quite a show. (laughs) Ron puts on quite a show. He totally (laughs) takes on a new character. I'm an old man. I'm an old feeble man. (laughs) I forgot what I was talking about. (laughs) Yeah, he really plays up the the feeble mind, Mm. feeble body, like just wary old man and tells Chris that he would prefer... If that nice police constable that gave the security talk, he would rather talk to her. He'd feel more comfortable talking to her. Yep. And uh, meanwhile... (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile... (laughs) Elizabeth has decided she wants in on this investigation. She wants to be very involved in this murder investigation. Honestly. (laughs) Yeah. She wishes she was the head investigator. So she, her method of doing this is she goes to talk to Donna and says, Hey, if you were on this case, would you feed us some insider info every now and then? Which Donna says no to, but it happens anyway. (laughs) Yeah. She's just like, absolutely not. Like that's why would I do that? (laughs) That's like breaking, probably breaking the law, probably breaking a lot of rules and risking my job unnecessarily. But also, yes, please get me on the case. (laughs) Yes. But so Elizabeth is like, but we could get you on the case. And that's something Donna really wants. So she does kind of, she does kind of submit. And Elizabeth already had this all set up. Like she's already got Ron and Ibrahim working on it, you know? So Chris. 12 steps ahead. Oh yeah. Always. Yeah. So Chris uh, comes back and, it's like, okay, I'm putting you on the case. And first things first, we got to go talk to these two guys, uh, these two witnesses. So that's Donna's in on the case. Yeah. So the Thursday Murder Club think that Ian is the most likely sus- suspect for Tony's murder, which because we, the audience, have had chapters from Ian's perspective, we know that he's not. Mm, or at least right. it would be kind of weird if he was. Um But they think it's him. So they look into his financial records. They learn that he stood to gain 12.5 million pounds from Tony Curran. I don't know if it's just getting cut out of the deal or him actually dying. But either way, he gets a lot of money. I think Ian's, for Ian's purposes, I think just cutting Tony out got him that money. But it just looks even more highly suspicious that Tony has died. So it's like a for sure... Ian is heavily benefiting from this death and also was seen arguing with the murder victim about half an hour before he died. (laughs) Also, he's such a wank. Right. And he's not the most likable person in the world. So it's easy to apply those terrible traits onto somebody who's already quite unlikable. Yeah. They even go so far as to like time if he could possibly have driven from Cooper's Chase to Tony Curran's house in the amount of time for him to get murdered. And it's just barely, but yes, it could have happened. So they also look into um, 
the third man in the photograph, this Bobby Tanner, Mm -hmm. um, they go talk to Jason about him and ask him, you know, Hey, do you know what happened to this guy? What's his whole deal? And Jason doesn't know anything. He tells him his name is Bobby Tanner, but I haven't heard from him in a very long time. We just no contact for many years and I have no idea where he is or what he's doing with his life. Right. Uh, And he also mentions that the man who took the photograph is named, he he went by Turkish Johnny and that's all he really knows about him either. He also went his own way, hasn't spoken to him for a long time. So he doesn't have a whole lot to offer, but he's definitely on the police's radar because he clearly knew Tony and a picture of him with Tony was Was found at the murder scene, which logically would be weird. If you, (laughs) if you murdered someone, you wouldn't be like, and here's this picture of us. me. (laughs) And like, just leave that right here. But I mean, as a police investigator, he has to be on your radar to cover your bases. Yeah. And I, I kind of forget if this is when Jason sheds light on their relationship, but He basically says that they all were in this kind of drug smuggling gang together. And the reason they all broke up and went their separate ways was because Tony killed another like kid drug dealer. I forget how young he was, but he was like young, a young kid. Mm -hmm. Somebody kind of just getting in on the the scene, getting in on the game. And he also tells Johnny to go kill the cab driver that witnessed it. So after that happened, pretty much everyone was like, whoa, this got a lot more sketch than I wanted. And they deuced. So yeah, they're all pretty seedy in their past. Mm -hmm. We have, so I guess, I mean, that all kinds of wraps up. So we have an ongoing investigation into Tony's murder. And the next big set piece in the story is Ian decides, screw it screw these people who don't want me to dig up this graveyard. I'm going to do it anyway. I have all the permits. You're not actually stopping me. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. He tries to like get the sneak on everyone and do it really early in the morning. And there's this passage that I really love. So I'm going to read it. (laughs) Um, It says a dawn raid is all well and good for catching drug dealers or armed gangs, but at Cooper's chase, it's next to useless. If such things were logged, the first phone call would have been recorded at 621. That beacon, <laughs> I know. That beacon lit, the news was across the whole village by 645 at the latest. The news spread by landline alone. <laughs> it's such a good it's such a good thing to point out that like you try and get away with something at 6 a.m. in a retirement village, like good fucking luck. It's yeah. you might as well be doing it like 3 p.m. In the middle of like town, because these people are up and at them. They are out on their morning walks, out having their tea. Like you're not going to surprise them at 6 a.m. And they immediately cause a fuss about the whole thing. (laughs) So when these like digging machines show up, there's already three, I think they're women that have chained themselves to the gate. You find out later that they're actually, um, I don't know if they're employees or friends of Father Matthew Mackey's, but then all, not all, many of the people from the retirement village also come along and they're like, hmm, I could get behind this cause. I don't think they should really dig up a graveyard. I'm just going to get out my folding chair and get some tea 
and some baked goods and sit and talk to my fellows in the middle of this road. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they just make it into a, a big old like yard party. Like I half the people I think are just there to just to be involved, just to for the sense of community (laughs) they roll up with their scones and tea and lawn chairs and are ready to just make a day of it um (laughs) it's kind of delightful uh, that it it goes from being a actual protest to just kind of turning into like a neighborhood-wide protest but (laughs) block party style right it's great um yeah and obviously ian is pissed Oh, he's real mad. He's so mad. And in fact, he tells his new contractor, this new this name uh, by the name of Bogdan, he tells him, go up around the back of the church and take a shovel with you and just start digging up the graveyard. You know, we can't get the trucks in there right now, obviously, but we are going to start digging today. He's going to yeah. make a point of it. So he sends him up there to start digging And as he's digging, Elizabeth walks up and her savvy knowledge tells her that all the action's happening down there, but I always go where the action isn't. And that led me up here. So they have a little exchange. They hit it off pretty much right away. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Elizabeth is kind of manipulating him in a way because she pretends that her name is the name of his mother to try to form a connection that isn't there. However, mm-hmm. I do think that they actually gain some trust for each other and it's a very cute little interaction. She kind of enters into the exchange in a disingenuine way, but like they do end up actually connecting and both end up really liking each other and enjoying talking to each other. So she she de- she departs and heads down, I guess, to the bottom of the hill area mm-hmm. and Bogdan keeps digging. And as he's digging, he's pulling out these coffins and moving on to the next one. And all of a sudden he comes across a skeleton. Dun, which dun, isn't all dun. that strange. You're digging up a graveyard, but oh, this one's not in a coffin. Okay, yeah. <laughs> premature dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so... He's perplexed. He investigates, lifts up the coffin lid. There's a skeleton in there. So this is an extra skeleton. That's not supposed to be here. Yeah. So (laughs) we're right away, like not right away, but like unexpectedly thrust into a second. Well, whose body is this? Mystery skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. Like why is this body here? What's this all about? That has Um, clearly been there for a long time because it's just bones. And so it's the second sort of bait and switch um, mm-hmm. of the book, which they all work so well in their own ways. But this this one got me, too, because you're think you know, they first get you a Tony's murder. You think he's going to murder Ian. He dies. Mm-hmm. And then you're thinking like, oh, OK, so now it's all about Tony's murder. But then this mystery skeleton comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And you're like, well, what is this? How could this possibly be related? Right. <laughs> like and it, it's it's clearly old don't really have an explanation for why it would be here uh and bogdan is just like you know what 
this is above my pay grade. Yep. Didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I don't know what this is. I don't know how to deal with this. So he reburies the sales, the skeleton. He's like, I'll talk to Ian about this, see how he wants to proceed. This is not my decision to make. So he reburies the skeleton and leaves. The scene shifts back down to where the action is happening at the gates. And Ian has called the cops. So Chris and Donna show up as they would. They manage to get some of the people out of the way by being like, you, you know, you can sit on the sidelines and watch. Um, but technically, you have to let them pass. Like, it is the law. He's got all the permits, whatever. But there's like a few people that don't move. I think it's um, Ron, Ibrahim, John, Bernard is in Bernard. there. Yeah. There's an old gentleman named Bernard in there. Um, and then Father Mackey. Uh, so yeah, Ian and this small remaining group of people get in a little bit of a tussle. It's not a full-on fight. It's mostly just like shoving. I mean, it's it's a 50-year-old man fighting some like 70-year-old men yeah. mm-hmm. as, and people. So it's <laughs> it's not a like throwdown. You're right. It ends up with the priest on the ground. Father so. Mackey ends up shoved to the ground, which kind of dispels the whole thing and yeah. not uh, great everybody's no everybody kind of like okay we'll we'll stop they check on father Mackey, and ian storms off to his car and this chapter's told from ian's perspective it's so good it's really well done he's storming off to his car he's so mad he's so pissed that this day went the way that it did he did not come out on top like he had planned and right. he is making plans in his head for how to make his dreams happen, how he gets his way. And as he's doing this and walking to his car, his internal monologue just starts going a little bit off. I I was so confused. I remember when I was reading it, I I like got to the parts where he just like starts talking off the wall, like thinking really bizarre things that you have no context for. And I even remember like flipping the page back and like rereading the page before it to be like, did I miss something? And then, you know, it just, it gets more and more weird. And then the last line in the chapter is Ian Bentham was dead before he hit the ground. Which it comes out of nowhere. (laughs) Jaw dropped. It literally like... (laughs) I, because you've just had, you've just had the second bait and switch of the skeleton showing up. Yeah. And so you're totally not prepared for yet another twist in the story. And Ian, you've read a couple chapters from his perspective. Yeah. Yeah. He, you think like, okay, he is a player in the game. He's going to be in it. And he's like a red herring for the people trying to figure out the mystery. Which you know he is. Like, you know he's innocent, but you also know he looks pretty guilty. Right. So you think he's going to play that role for the investigation of of looking like the guilty guy for most of it. And, <laughs> and then he fucking dies. <laughs> he just drops dead 30 seconds after getting in this, like, harmless little scuffle with these older folks and a priest. Like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? I... When I read it, I thought he had had a braining aneurysm. Which makes sense. His like internal monologue kind of like drifts off and just becomes kind of garbled. And you think like, what is, 
what is happening? And then when he dropped dead, I was like, oh, is this his, was that the aneurysm happening? And his, his brain was just like on the fritz Mm -hmm. and then he drops dead, but no, it was not of natural cause. Honestly, so wild and such a good little plot twist. And that's like the end of part one because the book is separated into three parts. It's so good. It's so good. It's it's great. Like I might be, I don't know. There's a really, there's a lot of really good moments in this book, Mm -hmm. but that one is for sure a standout. It's in the top. Like mystery moment because it just yanks you so hard the other direction. You're just really, you've been sort of placated and fooled twice already and this one just really sucker punches you out of nowhere (laughs) yeah it's such a good moment and thank gosh you don't have to read any more chapters from his perspective right honestly not mad about it It was like he sucks (laughs) though just one of those moments where he was just like oh shame (laughs) shame hate it i hate to see it sorry yeah so part two kicks off with the police now looking into Ian's death as well. Uh, And they find out that he died of fentanyl poisoning administered sneakily very shortly before he died. Through a needle poke, presumably. Yeah. Right. The conclusion is that, okay, this must have happened in that scuffle. You know, like he, he had to come into physical contact with someone for them to do this. And it would have like the fentanyl's, pretty toxic it happens quickly so it had to have been then it couldn't have been like way earlier in the day or something so the suspect list is pretty small reason you know reasonably quite small it's it's everyone that was physically in contact with him which forefront is father Mackey. yeah so let's talk about him a little bit pretty i don't know if it's pretty early on but i actually think it's kind of close to before this happens, he's up in the graveyard and a line that a lot like Ian dying that really like just made my me suck in air. He says that the the graveyard is so peaceful. It's so nice. It almost makes him believe in God. And I mm. went, <gasps> yes, but it's he's such a, a you're like, you're like, what the f- <laughs> yes what is going on yeah everybody has these like ulterior motives yes. that you just little secrets so you're like trying to be like okay so he could be a suspect if he's not, he doesn't even believe in god so what's up with the whole priest thing i actually really like matthew Mackey's character um as he develops but anyways at this point you're like he is shady as hell yeah you know he's putting on a bit of a face he's not an authentic priest, but you have no real explanation as to why he would be pretending to be a man of God. Right. And protecting this graveyard for some reason. And protecting this graveyard. Right. Yeah. And then you have Bernard, who is also there. Bernard, you meet pretty early on, and he's basically just kind of your average lonely old man. His wife, Asima, had died pretty recently and Joyce kind of took him under his wing and is trying to care for him and be there for him but he's um he's just very sad there's this passage that I really love about Bernard he says Bernard knows he has gone too far inside himself knows he is out of reach even to Joyce um and then at this point he's watching them all leave in their car and he said still what he wouldn't give to be in that car right now looking out at the view as Joyce nattered away but instead he will stay here on the hill where he sits every day and waits for what's to come. 
So he sits on a bench leading up to the graveyard every single day. So the Thursday Murder Club is like, he was there for the scuffle, and he sits on this bench, kind of like a little guardian for the graveyard every day. So he's also looking pretty suspicious. He's clearly attached to it in some way. There's something there that brings him to the graveyard every single day. And he was, despite his normally very gentle demeanor, was really quite fired up about the construction trucks coming mm-hmm. on site and was like really upfront with the whole scuffle with Ian. Um, he was definitely all up in there in the, in the little scuffle. So he's also a suspect and, and the mm-hmm. Thursday murder club, yeah, is making this list of people and they're sort of ruling people out who think like, Oh, this person's physical faculties like aren't quite good enough to be right. able to administer like a syringe of poison subtly enough in this fight you know like it had to have a little bit of finesse Mm -hmm. so you know they're ruling people out for different reasons and and sort of looking into who could have done this and why and there's one last person that they they don't even really kind of consider his name is john and he is penny's husband so penny the woman who's in willows the nursing home that's totally out of it now Her John is also in the nursing home. He goes there. He visits her every single day. It's very cute, but he's very quiet and you don't learn a lot about him, like really at all. So he's also on the list, but they they don't even really look into him, if I'm honest. No, like they keep him on the list, I think, because, yeah, he could have potentially done it. But he's really not like a high, high up on their list sort of person. Like there's just several other people involved that have clear motives And so they don't rule him out, but they also, like, don't start looking into him immediately. Okay, so Bogdan, who has met Elizabeth during the day of the excavation drama, pops by her house. Yeah, because Ian's dead. So he's like, well, I can't talk to him about this extra body now. So Right, like, I gotta... Who else do I trust? I'm the only person who knows about this. What the hell do I do? And (laughs) so... He gleaned from his conversation with her that she's quite savvy and smart and Mm -hmm. has her wits about her and decides, you know, like, hey, I connected with her. I'm going to go talk to her about it. And he asks her to meet him in the graveyard Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night, which I can't say I would do it. Honestly, (laughs) Elizabeth is wild. She does things. Got some balls. She really like, (laughs) I mean, once again, a nod to her history that we don't really know too much about. That she's just willing to do this doesn't, I mean, she knows it's sort of inherently dangerous, but like doesn't really think anything's going to happen. And she's kind of just goes in prepared to deal with whatever happens. Absolutely not Elizabeth, but okay. (laughs) Right. Not me. Can't, (laughs) can't be me. Wouldn't be me. But she trusts him, so... Uh, so yeah, he he confesses that he found this this skeleton. He takes her there. He shows her the skeleton, and um, they decide to take a sample, and she's going to send it off to a former colleague of yeah. hers. One of her contacts. Convenient. One of her contacts. <laughs> yes, she has lots of these she mysterious does. contacts. <laughs> which once again, it's like she had to have so many connections. Like she had to have been doing something really quite important. So she sends it off to a scientist to have the bones analyzed and, and like dated and, and stuff like that. And uh, that report comes back and says that it's a body from the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a male. It had a gunshot wound to the leg. That's the only thing that's really wrong with it is they have 
uh, a gunshot wound to the leg that you but can still see in the bone. But the gunshot wound was healed, so it wasn't cause of death. Interesting. They don't really know what to make of it. Uh, they rebury the bones. <laughs> right. <laughs> they they do all their own testing and investigating, and then they rebury the body. And then Elizabeth decides, okay, I can tell the police about this extra body in the graveyard. This is... I mean, Elizabeth has been so manipulative up until this point, but this is the point where I'm like, I don't understand her motive for not telling Donna and Chris. I think she's worried that she's not going to like get the results and be in on it. But like, woman, this is a like felony. It's big time illegal. And I think she, I don't know if she thinks like, Part of her thinks she wants to make sure it is something to be looked into in the first place, you know? I think that's an excuse, but yeah. I Well, I mean, I think it's a factor, but I think her main motivation is just she wants to have that information first because if she just were to tell the police about it and they come and exhume the body and send it off for testing, she may never find out what those results are. Like, she might not be privy to whatever that is, and she needs to make sure she knows before they are told. And basically, when they show up, the cops are like, what the hell? You should be arrested. And she's like, yeah, but you're not going to do that, are you? So let's just move on. And then after a while, they do. Yeah, they just seem grateful to have been given this evidence. And she, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, it's up there. You can dig it up and make it look like you found it or whatever. Like, you're going to get all of the glory but here's what i already know <laughs> yeah <laughs> which to be fair if i was chris or donna i would be like what the hell i'd be pretty freaking annoyed mostly just because like potentially obstruction of justice yeah. sort of situation where like you knew something about a murder and a mysterious body and did not tell the police about it even if it was just for a day or two like that's obviously still problematic. What else are you hiding from us? What else do you know? And speaking of other stuff that she knows, she is on her own little escapade to track down this mysterious third man in the photograph. And she does. She totally does. She absolutely does. Without much issue, seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> using her contacts that we know nothing about. So she, um, she finds out information about Bobby Tanner and uh, sort of his history and finds out that I guess his brother died. She stakes out the graveyard that his brother is buried at and sees that on the day of his brother's death, this man comes to visit the grave mm -hmm. and lays flowers and then leaves. Uh, and so then she goes to confront this man. Yeah. So he has changed his name to Peter. Peter Ward. Peter Ward. So Peter now runs a very successful flower shop. He's a florist. The introduction to this chapter was so fun to read. So good. Because all, like, at the beginning of the chapter, all of a sudden, you're out of the story. You're, you're not in the brain of a character you already know. You're just being told this story about this little flower shop that opened. And it was like the little flower shop that could. <laughs> and this yes. really busy shopping district sort of built up around it. And now it's this like very trendy, thriving little area. And it's such a like fun little story. And then you come to find out as Elizabeth walks in and says, you're Bobby Tanner, aren't you? Uh, and you're like, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, what was going on for a second? And then it, it came around. I another like props to Richard Osman. He does a really good job of introducing characters and settings like 
three-fourths the way through the book, but still making you like them and root for them, which I feel like has got to be really hard to do because you already know your characters. You don't want to have to learn about somebody else and add another player to it, even though it's more realistic. But he just does such a good job because by the end of learning about Peter, I really liked Peter. Yeah, you do. You, I guess his involvement in the drug trade was that he would smuggle drugs. Uh, so he was still in like the nursery and floral business, but he would smuggle drugs in his like delivery vans for, for flowers. A genius. And uh, he kind of got roped in to that. And then when the murder happened, the, the gunshot of the young drug dealer uh, a while back, he was like, you know what, I'm out, kind of got out around the same time as Tony and Jason and has just been thriving as Peter Ward, the flower shop owner. (laughs) He really, he's got a like quintessential little quiet life. (laughs) It's kind of a dream. Yeah. And I love that when he's (laughs) like confronted by these two older women who are like, we know your past. There has been murders related to your past. What are you going to do about it? He's like so calm and he talks to them and he tells them everything. And oh yeah, he's so nice to them. He's so just like accepting of it. And he, I mean, he almost immediately provide, you know, says like, well, I have CCTV footage of myself in the shop on mm-hmm. the day of, of Tony's murder. Like I, I have footage, hard evidence proving it was not me. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you what I know and that'll be that, you know, I can't really do much else for you. Uh, so he, he gives him a little bit of backstory. He does. And he ends up getting in contact with Jason because they were once pals back in the day. So they get together and put their brains together and are like, who, if it's not either of us that killed Tony, who could it possibly be? And they both have the thought of Turkish Johnny, their old buddy. So they were like, If Turkish Johnny came back to town, because they assume he fled to Cyprus, where he's from, if he came back to town, who would he stay with? And they both have the thought of, what's his name, Steve? Steven? Yeah, this 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 old contact from the the drug days. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Steve. This guy, Steve, who now runs a gym. And is another character that you get introduced to really late in the book, but you still kind of end up rooting for. Yeah, he, you don't feel like he just adds on these characters as you go and you don't feel like, oh, it's this new character that I don't really care about. I don't really know anything about them. Like he does such a good job of, of giving you an overview of their life and their mm-hmm. motivations and who they are as a person right? to where you, you genuinely do feel like you care. <laughs> and they've all kind of reformed. There's some sort of 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 turnaround story for each of these men mm-hmm. who have seedy pasts. So yeah, you're just instantly like, okay, this guy, Steve, he runs a gym now. He's got a family. He's doing well. He's keeping to himself. Good for yeah. him, you know? And when the police come by to question him, he he doesn't outright say anything, really. But he does kind of give them a lead in a very backhanded sneaky kind of way he kind of makes it obvious that threats have been made that if he Mm -hmm. talks to anybody about anything that things will happen to his family so he's not interested in giving them any information but what he does do is gives them five grand yeah (laughs) he does (laughs) he just produces five thousand dollars uh like in an envelope and it's i think 
both in the delivery of it and like the way it's packaged makes them realize that this is like hush money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So he's he's telling them like, here's this hush money that I have, but I haven't actually told you anything. So he it's an admission of like, yeah, he was here, but I'm not really allowed to confirm that to you. (laughs) Yeah, I can confirm it. And he's doing the right thing by turning it over. He's forfeiting that money so uh so yeah chris decides all right we need to track down this turkish johnny and he takes a little jaunt over to cyprus and uh kind of like looks into johnny's past he he visits his father who is now in prison right tries to get information about where johnny could be nobody's talking nobody's saying anything according to them nobody's seen him for a very long time like it and he thinks like Oh, they're just all being tight-lipped. But his dad is like, if he was going to come back, he would immediately come see me. And he hasn't done that. Whether that's true or not, you don't know. You don't know. So Chris is like, all right, well, this wasn't very fruitful. So he heads back. And uh, in the airport in Cyprus, he bumps into... Oh, my God. I cannot believe that happened. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's so... It's such a, like, moment. It's such a, like... I remember laughing when I read this that he bumps... <laughs> He bumps into Ibrahim and Rod. <laughs> and he almost immediately is like, yep, checks out. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> he's like, they are also in Cyprus looking into their own leads. And he's just like, of course. Like, at this point, he's like, not surprised. He's just like, kind of like, all right. Okay, Why wouldn't I you get be it. here right now? Yeah, of course you're here. <laughs> and they they're, they approach him, like not trying oh. to be sneaky at all. And they're just like, mm-hmm. oh, hey, I think we're here for the same reason you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So oh, gosh. Oh, I love it. I do, too. <laughs> yeah, so they, they all come back from Cyprus. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, while they were in Cyprus, um, Elizabeth, Yet again, doing something that she shouldn't be doing as an old frail woman. I mean, I don't know if she's frail, but Mm -hmm. she decides that she's going to confront Matthew Mackey and basically accuse him of the extra body in the grave. That chapter, it it got me. a wild ride. (laughs) Did it get you? It got me. Oh, yeah. It's a wild ride. So she she tells... Father Mackey, that she needs to confess and that she needs to meet him at the confession booth to make a confession. And she sets off on this story. And you don't know that she's the one telling it. You assume that it's Mackey telling it, mm-hmm. which is what I did anyway. Yeah, it's it's told in a way where there's no gendered pronouns and there's no there's no indication that it is elizabeth as the narrator so you automatically sort of think it's mackie yeah and it's telling this whole story about how she makes up this whole tale about about why there's a skeleton in the graveyard yeah she says someone attacked her that she was trying to hook up with but it was like time in life where you couldn't be forthcoming about those things so she defended herself and then she didn't know what to do so she like dragged the body up there and when you're hearing it from in your mind from the perspective of Mackie, I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's gay. A man attacked him and he didn't know what to do. And you really feel for him for a second. I mean, your heart really goes out thinking this is all very real. And it's it's a tragic story. You know, mm-hmm. like somebody ended up murdering somebody that 
they really didn't ever intend to and it was the self-defense situation mm-hmm. but no uh you so, immediately are duped yeah the story concludes and father Mackey instantly accuses elizabeth of lying and then you come to realize it was her telling this whole made-up story which is about the skeleton which is super manipulative <laughs> and he tells her i know you're lying and it kind of cuts to him telling everyone in the murder mystery club but his actual tale is just as heartbreaking oh my gosh it's oh man gut wrench it's almost it's uh, it's like almost worse like yeah. it oh so yeah father Mackey's whole story he immigrated from ireland he was living in the area and he was like a basically priest in training Yeah, like he wasn't an actual priest, but he was kind of performing the duties of a priest at this convent because they didn't have one. And I guess he was like kind of pursuing becoming a priest at the Mm -hmm. time. So it was like he was just doing this to help out while he was while he was doing that. So he was young, like in his 20s sometime, I think, and ends up meeting and falling in love with one of the nuns at the convent, her name is Sister Margaret or Maggie. Yeah. yeah, and obviously it's like forbidden love. Very forbidden. They can't be together, but they decide they're going to be anyway because they both love each other. So they've got, you know, these sneaking around tactics. and mm-hmm. He has his own quarters, I guess, that are separate from the nuns. So, you know, they have these little clandestine meetings mm-hmm. in his his bedroom I think their plan was to run away together pretty quickly because, you know, they wanted to be together. So they were going to move away and, you know, make a life outside of the convent. But one night she doesn't show up and he goes looking for her. Uh, and it's he- so, it's so, <laughs> this, you're, as you're reading this, you know, like, obviously, like something's gone wrong. Like mm-hmm. she, she didn't show up. They were uh, literally leaving tonight and she didn't show up. You feel something's coming, but you don't fully. I thought she had just like gotten cold feet and backed out and like either run off on her own or was like just refused to meet him and was like staying in her own room. But he and he goes looking for her and and enters the church and um, he finds her hanging in the chapel. She has um, killed herself and it is devastating. Yeah. You find out that the reason she killed herself was because she was pregnant and Mm -hmm. people found out within the convent and she was going to get chipped away and she really struggled and she ended up doing the ultimate thing. And so he tells it like she took her life away from me and she took her child's life away from me and they hushed it up. Only him and the like top nun, I forget what they call them, knew about it and they hushed it up and they buried her and sent Matthew on his way. Yeah, they sent him off quietly and quickly, buried her in the graveyard, which is his, obviously his big motivation for not wanting the graveyard disturbed is that the love of his life and his son, mm-hmm. his unborn son, are buried in the cemetery and clearly he does not want that disturbed. Um, and it's a really upsetting, like Ugh, it's heartbreaking sucks. story and chapter. It's so rough. Like, it was hard to read. But that totally absolves him of suspicions. He didn't do it. 
And so as Elizabeth is learning this whole thing, the police are just now learning that Father Mackey isn't actually a priest. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Because they're still looking into him for Ian's murder. And they, you know, in this process, they find out, oh, he's not a priest. He's a doctor, which really doesn't look good for somebody being able to administer drugs well. Mm-hmm. So they are like thinking it's him. They're they're like, oh, we got our guy. And meanwhile, Elizabeth's like, okay, it's definitely not. It's not him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Bernard. Oof. Yeah, Bernard. So his story is already quite sad because he lost his wife. He goes to that bench every day in memory of her and just clearly is sad. And, you know, Joyce is doing her best to kind of be there for him and and be a companion and go out, you know, just kind of keep him busy. Yeah, she, one day they, it's honestly like kind of cute and really kind of sad. They've um, got this system, which Joyce says that a lot of people in the village have this system where they call every single night just to check that they're okay and that nothing has happened. And one night, Bernard doesn't respond. So the next morning, Joyce goes and, you know, wants to check on him, even though she kind of already knows that he's gone. And she finds basically a suicide note on his door. Then you learn Bernard's story, and it's just as heartbreaking. (laughs) It's just as heartbreaking. His wife, Asima, um, had passed away. Mm -hmm. She was cremated, and their daughter wanted to spread, per tradition in Indian culture, they wanted to spread her ashes in the Ganges River. Mm -hmm. And Bernard couldn't bear to part with her remains, and so hid his wife's ashes and provided his daughter with fake yeah, like ashes to spread in the river. And he quietly and sneakily buried her ashes uh, under or like up at the graveyard on top of the hill. And then they just so happened to put a bench very close by. And so that is why he goes to that bench every day is to sit with Asima and talk to her and like, oh. <sighs> It's so sad. It hurts the heart. It just aches. Oh, God. Yeah. So he write, you know, he writes in his note that he's just essentially tired of living without her and feels awful for what he did. And so he also committed suicide. A lot of suicide in this book. Yes. Honestly, more than I was expecting. It really, it hits hard in some of the yes, parts. Yes, Yeah. So... That's Bernard's story, so he is also not a culprit. At any rate, he has passed now, but he, in the process, absolved himself of of Ian's murder as well. And, you know, his whole explanation for why he was and motive for protecting the graveyard. So mm-hmm. another one ticked off the list of who could possibly yeah. have killed Ian and for what reason. And so it was at this point in the book where I even, like, wrote it down in my notes. I was like, so... Who have we not absolved of their involvement? Like, what people in this story have we not gotten their story from? And Mm -hmm. I came up with Bogdan, Penny, and John. And lo and behold. Lo and behold, Lauren is quite the detective. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it comes to light that Cooper's Chase has been sold to a company called Bramley Holdings. 
And this rings a bell to Joyce, but she doesn't know why. Jason shows up to the next murder club meeting and says he thinks that Karen Playfair, the daughter of the man who owns the land that Ian wanted, she is Ian's killer. Yeah. And conveniently, he has matched with her on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) Convenient or not so convenient. Uh, yeah, so they go out on a date. A fake date. A fake date, yeah. He's <laughs> not really interested in dating her. It's all a ruse. Uh, and he actually confronts her on this date and accuses her of killing Ian with the motive of knowing that Ian was the main reason her dad was not selling the property and that if Ian was out of the way, he they could sell the property, she could get her money and, like, get out. Mm-hmm. And she would be getting what she wanted. She basically laughs at him. Yeah, she <laughs> she's like, you're an idiot. I would never. <laughs> Which is such a good, like, it's such a, like, reaction to being accused of murder for, like, Can very legitimate reasons. <laughs> she is not worried. She's just like, uh, no. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, yeah. And they actually end up having a good date. Yeah. He meets her dad, right? Gordon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they go through his old photo albums. Yeah. They they end up hitting it off and and yeah, it works out <laughs> unexpectedly. <laughs> what a what a how did we meet story. <laughs> I accused her of murder. So kind of at this point, they just kind of figure it out, don't they? Well, so Jason is, you know, back at their house. Jason is talking to Karen about the whole investigation and all that. She remembers that a long time ago, uh, her dog died or got sick or something. I can't recall. Um, oh. But that John, oh Penny's husband, yes. was her veterinarian. I can't believe I forgot that. Yes. Which is an instant like, <gasps> somebody who could do the needle. <laughs> so you're like instantly yes. like, oh, this Somebody is who's been awfully quiet. Very quiet. Yes. Nobody's really looking into him. Yeah. So John is right up in the suspect list now. And Elizabeth uh, actually goes to confront him about yeah. it. With everyone, with her whole gang, which is when we learn John's story. And it is also heartbreaking. There's a lot of heartbreak. Yeah. So he begins with this like very short explanation. Basically, Elizabeth is like, you killed Ian. Why'd you do it? And he gives a very brief explanation about how once back in the day, he killed a man with fentanyl that basically needed to be put out of his misery because he was super sad. And that was it. And I rem- I even wrote in my notes, I was like, we get a whole monologue from the priest who didn't do anything. And we get one page from the culprit. Yeah, it feels really like unsatisfying yes. and you're a little bit annoyed about it. Yeah, I was. I was <laughs> totally annoyed about it. Mm-hmm. But yes, I had the same reaction. <laughs> yeah, but obviously there was more. Elizabeth is like, I'm not buying it. You're protecting someone. And that someone just so happens to be Penny. Yeah. So as we mentioned at the beginning, um, Penny was, she was a police detective in her time. Um, which is what she and Elizabeth bonded over and they started the murder club and it started with them kind of looking into Penny's old cold cases. And uh, yeah, John kind of tells the tale of this one case 
that Penny worked <sighs> where a young girl was stabbed to death and died in her boyfriend's arms. Sound familiar? Mm, yeah. Sounds a little bit like why would Elizabeth be asking questions about stab wounds from the very beginning of the game of the game of the story of the book? <laughs> Such a full circle. It's so cool that it comes back into play. Yeah. You really have totally forgotten about that because you think it's just such a throwaway yeah. cold case. Introduction. You know, that they're, he's just using it to, to introduce these two characters, but now mm -hmm. it comes full circle. Penny had worked out that, the boyfriend was actually the killer and that he had intentionally let his girlfriend bleed out. Yeah. Uh, Cause like, as Joyce said, she wouldn't have died she, yeah. if she had medical attention. So yeah. And he had experience in the army, so he would have known. So he lets her bleed out and then calls the police. Penny, Penny knows Penny just, she figures it out and she, she totally is right and has, has this guy pinned, but they yeah. cannot prove it. Yeah. He like through the legal system, they cannot prove that this man killed his girlfriend. Yeah. So, you know, I don't approve of this sort of behavior, obviously, <laughs> but Penny. She goes vigil vigilante. Mm -hmm. She knows he's not going to be brought to justice. Uh, and so she executes justice on her own. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think she it's kind of like you're led to believe that she had just had so many cases mm -hmm. like this where you're dealing with domestic violence and crimes against women and that this one was just like it was just it and she had to get it out and she so she killed him and hid his bones in the graveyard the grave a freshly dug grave so this happened in the 70s I guess as well, or um, not very long after Sister Margaret had passed away. So, so she's the one from the very beginning, the preface, right? Are we meant to believe that that's her? I believe her? Penny is the writer of the preface. Yeah, yeah, talking about how she has a cigarette, yeah. and because you you read that and you can kind of tell that there's not really a level of regret there, but you don't know why or who's talking or mm -hmm. anything, but you come to understand why. Yeah, I mean. And, you know, I don't condone it either, but I, I get where she's coming from. She's this very strong-willed woman that is on the police force in the 70s, and I'm sure it sucked. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was a terrible environment to work in, and, like, I'm sure the work was terrible. It was just, I'm sure it was draining. So, yeah, John ended up killing Ian to prevent, it was protecting Penny. He was, he didn't want her to be blamed for this murder or for that to be found out. So he killed Ian to put a stop to the new development uh, and the excavation of the graveyard. So it was an act of true love. He just, he really wanted to protect her. Yeah. And so he had fentanyl and was experienced with it and he was able to slip it to Ian. I think this is the last truly tragic bit in this story. But yeah. as, as oh, Elizabeth yeah. is talking with John in Penny's room, she kind of tells him, like, I'll give you the night before I tell the you know <laughs> before, officials yeah. what's happened, you know? Yeah. So essentially telling him, like, you can do with that time what you will. And um, he kind of says his goodbyes to Penny 
Uh, and she kind of notices like something suspicious going on when he's like saying goodbye to Penny yeah. uh, and comes to the conclusion that he has administered a fatal dose to Penny because he can't be there for her. He's not going to live through the night. Mm -hmm. He does not want to go to prison for murder. Right. For the rest of his days. So. Right. So yeah. he essentially assisted suicide. Assisted suicide and then Penny and then himself suicide. goes home and commits suicide. So yeah. a lot of suicide. A lot of suicide. <laughs> it's um, But yeah, it's it's all very upsetting, but this one is really hard cuz Elizabeth is just so sad to see mm -hmm. her friend go, but also totally understands the circumstances and is kind of yeah. almost relieved that Penny has has exited in mm -hmm. a in like a quiet, peaceful way. Yeah. It's yeah. a little bit of a relief on her, I think. She kind of God, that chapter where she's saying goodbye to Penny. I oh. was crying in my truck at work. <laughs> <laughs> while I read it feeling all the feels <laughs> yes it's it's very sad oh, um but very heartfelt it is it is she congratulates her on getting away with it basically she says you know I, I can't believe you kept that secret from me for all this time but she kind of respects her for it mm -hmm. it's just and they were like best buds it's yeah they were they were best best friends yeah <laughs> So, one murder solved. Yeah, one murder solved, for sure. Actually, technically... Oh, two. Two murders two. solved. Yeah. Because we have, we have the murder, we have the bones mm -hmm. in the graveyard, and we have uh, Ian's murder solved. Yeah. Yeah, so Elizabeth heads home, and she gets home to find that her husband, Stephen, who is dealing with some brain fog and dementia of his yeah. own. Like he still has his faculties, but he gets confused and mistakes her for other his, you know, his previous wife every now and then. Um, and so he has good days and bad days, but he's definitely like inching into the like full, yeah. full on dementia. Um, but she comes home to find him playing chess with Bogdan. Yeah. Yep. who is yeah he's ian's contractor who had discovered the skeleton in the in the right. graveyard and i really like bogdan i like all of his interactions he's a very calm put together dude you have a couple chapters from his perspective and mm -hmm. he he's very rational and like collected and like yeah i mean he found a skeleton in a graveyard and was and like had the wherewithal to just be like mm. nope and just buried it again <laughs> <laughs> like I don't, I just really respected that decision <laughs> and his decision to like share that with Elizabeth. Yeah. Because who else do you share that with once Ian is dead? Right. I mean the cops, but for reasons that we know now, he he's not like a big fan of the cops. So so he um he's bonding with her husband Stephen over chess. It's very it's a very, it's very like cute. heartwarming sweet interaction. Yes, it really is. It's it's truly lovely. Like I loved this this scene of them just playing chess together. So good. And Elizabeth just like loves watching them play and cuz her husband's brain gets it gets quite sharp when he's playing chess. Mhm. Mm gets him out of his fog a little bit. Yeah, but Elizabeth actually wasn't there. You can kind of assume that she has figured it out. Bogdan's whole story, but it was just Bogdan and Steven when you learn Bogdan's story, which is not as heartbreaking, but it is 
full of little twists and turns and things that you wouldn't really expect. Is he so he's confessing it to Stephen then? Stephen asks him. Yeah, so they're playing chess and Stephen is like, So Elizabeth talks to me and I've got a question for you. And Bogdan's like, sure. And he's like, Did you kill Tony? And Bogdan's like, Yep. <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't even like think about hiding it. He's just like, Oh yeah, that was me. <laughs> yep. And Stephen just keeps asking him questions and he just answers them all totally honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he did kill Tony. Our first first murder officially solved he murdered tony because the shooting that happened to the young drug dealer a long long time ago was you know in the efforts to cover it up tony got a cab and told the cab driver to go dump the body Mm -hmm. then to just keep it clean tony ended up murdering this cab driver as well i think it, it was actually turkish johnny that murdered him but it was on tony's orders Right. Yes. Yes. That was correct. Um, so it, it comes to light that Bogdan uh, killed Johnny a long time like ago. Immediately. <laughs> like, like pretty much like back in the 70s, right when yeah. this happened. With the help of Steve from the gym. Yeah. Steve from the gym mm-hmm. comes back. <laughs> and uh, that's also why Steve kind of let the police think that like Johnny's still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because uh, he was covering for, for Bogdan. Yeah. And that's why they couldn't find Johnny and why he right. never went back to see his dad is because he was dead a long time ago. He, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Bogdan's whole motive beyond, for this was that he was very good friends with the cab driver. Yeah. Who Kaz. was told to bury the body. Yeah, Kaz. So he was revenging, uh, avenging his friend's death. Yeah. He killed Johnny because of it and then really waited and and bided his time a uh, long ass time revenge 30 oh, 50 years crazy amount of time that's the only part of the book where i'm like hmm okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah i like to think that he was kind of toiling over whether he wanted to murder tony or not because tony wasn't the actual murderer it was his orders you know yeah but i don't know he does he waits 50 years to get revenge on tony but he eventually does kill him he just tries to throw the police off with the photo and he had installed the alarm systems so he was able to get in really easily and made sure that nothing was recording anything. And But he totally slips under the radar. He does. He totally like, because he just seems like this straight shooter, like honest guy who's just like, yeah, I'm just here to. And, you know, the his connection to the to the shooting from the 70s was so like two steps removed yeah. that mm-hmm. the cab driver, they didn't necessarily know he'd been murdered. He just kind of disappeared and they didn't really know much about him. So his death was not really looked into by the police. And yeah, it just allowed Bogdan to sort of go under the radar. And that's the majority of the story is wrapped up there. Another murder solved. Yeah. It wraps up really quite nicely. Um, it does. Bogdan does the sweetest thing ever. And engraves on uh, yes. Maggie's headstone. He engraves the name of their son, which is Patrick, mm-hmm. their unborn son, and he puts his date of death uh, on there. So and then they take Maggie there and show him, and of course, he just, like, breaks down, which is, like, oh, heartbreaking. Would you like me to read from the last chapter? Sure. Yes, please. All right, so it just kind of, like, totally sums up the book in, in honestly a very perfect way, I think. 
again, give credit to Osmond. It's it's a perfect last chapter. Because he like he ties everything up in a neat little bow. All the answers are given to you. Mm-hmm. So good. Yes. Okay, so again, from the perspective of Joyce. Sorry I haven't written for a while. It's been very busy around here. But I have a gooseberry crumble on the go, and I thought there might be a few things you'd want to know. They buried Penny and John the Tuesday before last. It had been in the papers. They hadn't got the whole story straight, but they were near enough. Elizabeth wasn't at the funeral. I don't even know if Elizabeth has forgiven Penny. I'm afraid I take the Old Testament view that what Penny did was right. I hope Peter Mercer was alive long enough to know what was happening to him. That is um, the gentleman who killed his girlfriend and then got murdered by Mm -hmm. Penny. But I do think Elizabeth must be sad at the secret. All the while, Penny was the biggest mystery of all. That must hurt Elizabeth. Perhaps one day we'll talk about it. Penny killed Peter Mercer, and she kept it from John all her life, until dementia broke her. And once John knew, he had to protect her. That's love, isn't it? Because Peter Mercer murdered Annie Madeley, Penny murdered Peter Mercer. Because Penny murdered Peter Mercer, John murdered Ian Bentham. So it goes, I suppose. I wish peace on Penny and John, and I wish peace on poor Annie Madeley. For Peter Mercer and for everything he caused, I wish nothing but torment. The police have yet to find Turkish Johnny, by the way, but they're looking. Chris has a new lady friend, but is being coy about it for now, and we can't get Donna to talk. Oh my god, we totally forgot to talk about. Uh, He's dating Donna's mother now. He's dating Donna's mother. And it's very cute. It is. It's so cute. (laughs) Donna definitely, like, set them up. Yes, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Chris says they'll catch up with Johnny eventually, but Bogdan was around to fix my power shower the other day, and he says Johnny is too smart for that. The only person too smart to be caught around here is Bogdan. Don't you think he killed Tony Curran? I do. I'm sure he had a good reason, and I look forward to asking him. But not until he's fitted my new replacement window. (laughs) (laughs) Hillcrest is already up and running. There are cranes and diggers up on the hill. They say Gordon Playfair got 4.2 million pounds for his land. He drove the 400-odd yards down the hill and unpacked it all at a nice two-bedroom in Larkin Court. Bramley Holdings? Joanna owns the whole place, or Joanna's company, but that's the same thing, isn't it? Here's what she said. So you learn that Bramley Holdings is Joanna. She is the Which I don't know if we introduced Joanna, but uh, this is Joyce's daughter. (laughs) I don't think we did. She's like a, she's in like the finance industry and she uh, is who Elizabeth and Joyce went to visit when they wanted to get ian's uh like ventham's financial status you know that mm-hmm. when they went to get the lowdown on on his whole financial situation she's got a pretty typical mother-daughter relationship with joanna um but this little passage that i'm about to read is very sweet so joanna is talking to joyce and she says remember when you moved in here and i told you it was a mistake I told you it would be the end of you, sitting in your chair, surrounded by other people just waiting out their days. I was wrong. It was the beginning of you, Mum. I thought I would never see you happy again after Dad died. Your eyes are alive, your laugh is back, and it's thanks to Cooper's Chase, and to Elizabeth, and to Ron, and to Ibrahim, and to Bernard, God, Bernard, God rest his soul. And so I bought it, the company, the land, the whole development. And I bought it to say thank you, Mum. Though I know what you're going to say next, and I promise I will make millions out of it, so don't panic. The Garden of Eternal <laughs> Rest is saying, I know, I love that. The Garden of Eternal Rest is staying exactly where it is. The graveyard is now protected, even if Cooper's Chase is sold again. 
We had a ceremony the other day. Elizabeth invited Matthew Mackey for lunch, and along he came. We broke the news to him that Maggie was safe, and I thought he would cry, but he didn't. He just asked to visit the grave. We walked up the hill with him, then we sat on Bernard and Asima's bench while he pushed open the iron gates and knelt beside the grave. That was when the tears came, and we knew as they would when he saw the headstone. I had watched a couple of days ago as Bogdan had spent the best part of the morning gently cleaning up the inscription, Sister Margaret Ann, Margaret Farrell, 1948-1971, before carving underneath, Patrick, 1971. There really is nothing Bogdan can't do. You'll want to know about the bench, too. Well, busy Bogdan took to the concrete with a pneumatic drill, then dug down until he found the tea caddy, which held the ashes of um, Asima, Bernard's wife, which he gave to me. I knew Bernard had given me my instructions. I had Asima's ashes in the tea caddy, and I had Bernard's ashes in a simple wooden urn. I took out my scales. Within minutes, and with the help of a couple intermediary bits of Tupperware, the deed was done. In the tiger tea caddy that they both had wanted to buy for the other for Christmas was half Bernard and half Asima. The next day, we buried the tea caddy back under the bench where it belonged. We asked Matthew. Oh, I know. By heart. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we asked Matthew Mackey to bless the site, and I think he was touched to be asked. And in the urn, half Asima and half Bernard. And unbeknownst to them, that's what their children took to Fairhaven the following day, so Asima could finally float free, but still in the embrace of the man she loved. Oh. <laughs> Talking of Elizabeth, she rang me earlier to tell me that someone had slid a very interesting note under her door. She wouldn't say what it was, but she said she'd have to pay someone a little visit, and then she could tell me. What a tease. Well, it is Thursday, so I must be on my way. I worried that after Penny we might stop meeting, or perhaps it would feel different. But that's not really how things work around here. Life goes on until it doesn't. The Thursday Murder Club goes on meeting. Mysterious notes are pushed under doors, and murderers fit replacement windows. They know. <laughs> Long may it continue. After the meeting, I will pop over and see how Gordon Playfair is settling in. Just being a good neighbor. And right on time, there's my crumble. I will let you know how everything goes. And that's the end. Such a good little wrap up. I know. You get all the questions answered. And I love mm -hmm. that they all just agree silently to not tell on Bogdan. They're all just like, eh. He, he helps out a lot. He's good. Yeah, we'll keep him around. <laughs> he, he killed pretty horrible people. Right. Yeah. Bogdan is great. Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. So is Bernard. And that, uh, it just gets to my heart. For sure. It's such a good little book. Uh, even if you listen to this, I still recommend that you read it. Yes. It's a really good autumn book because it is like, it's a good book to like curl up with and drink tea if it's cold outside or something yeah because it's just it is like a cozy comforting book i think the blurb on the front of the book says um, um a little beacon of pleasure yes and that is the perfect description because it really does feel that way the setting is so good and i love their little nods to a changing world but from the perspective of this older generation mm-hmm and how they're, they're set in their ways, but they also kind of embrace the change in whatever ways they can. Like when when Joyce goes and finds Bernard's suicide note, he tells her that the ambulance men might let her in to see him. And she like stops reading and she says, they didn't let me see him in the end. And they were both ambulance women. 
<laughs> stuff like that. And and the part where um, Donna, she goes to see Penny with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth talks about how hard it was for Penny on the force as a woman. And Donna has a very relatable moment where they both agree that not all battles have been won. And there's still room to grow. It's just, it's so good. The melding of generations woven into this tale. I, I totally agree. It does that really elegantly mm-hmm. um, and doesn't hit you over the head with it. You know, like that would have gotten on my nerves if it was just constantly pointing out like these people are old and they're right. from a different era. But it's not <laughs> like that at all. It's very subtly done and poignant and Oh, I just really, I love it so much. I loved it way more than I thought I would. Me too. And yeah, there are two sequels. Uh, he two? has. So Thursday Murder Club came out in September 2020. Oh, okay. And the next September, he put out The Man Who Died Twice, a Thursday Murder Club mystery. Holy crap, Richard. I know, he's really on it. And then... On September 15th, 2022, so very, very shortly, he will release The Bullet That Missed. Oh, my God. I wonder if it was like his COVID project. I mean, probably. Probably. I mean. (laughs) Seems right on time. He did such a great job. I'm glad that he's keeping it going because he definitely did set up the opportunity to have more stories. Yes. It's a perfect setup to have just like a series of little mysteries that they solve. And I hope it keeps like outside characters like Chris and Donna and Bogdan. And- oh, I feel like if Chris and Donna, they have to be in it because yeah. they're the local police, which are going to be involved one way or another. Um, You're right. Bogdan, I'm not so sure of, but I feel like if Chris and Donna are in it, in it, I would be very, very surprised. That's true. That's a good point. So, All right. I think we should rate yes. this one. Uh, our, our general concept for our rating system is the, the five-star rating system where – Five stars is no notes. It's perfect. Highly recommend. Uh, would read again. Would watch again, etc. Uh, four is, I guess, like a, we really enjoyed it. It has a few little moments where it's not quite perfect, but it's still really, really good and worth your time. Mm-hmm. Three is like an average, you know, it's good. It's worth watching, but like there's better stuff out there. And then I think two and one are where we really start getting into that. We actively disliked it. <laughs> Did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> one is obviously worse. It's terrible. Do not recommend. I, I would say two is also like a do not recommend. Yeah. But it has like maybe some redeeming things in it. So that's the general idea for our rating system. And for me, I think, I think this is a four for me okay. at the moment. And I think upon like rereads and reflection and stuff, which I feel like this is for sure a book I could reread. Yeah, for sure. It definitely has the potential to like move up into the five star for me, just because it is such a comfort read, Mm -hmm. even though it deals with really difficult topics, it deals with them in like a very human Mm -hmm. loving way that feels very comforting. So yeah, it's a four, potentially five for me. Yes. I, Totally agree. I really, really enjoy this book. And I feel like <laughs> it's it's strange that it's like the first book that we decided to read on the podcast and it was such a home run hit. Um, yes. <laughs> but I'm going to give it a 4.5. I think the only reason I'm docking any points is because I did think that Bogdan 
killing Tony. It was the only thing that didn't really hit hit for me. Yeah. Was him just waiting so long? Yes. Yeah. Waiting 50 years to commit the murder that started everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I liked the reveal and I really liked the way it came about, but it didn't kind of track. Yeah, it was the one like concession I feel like that had to be made in order for the story to kick off mm-hmm. the way it did was for that murder to be delayed for quite some time. Yeah. And there were like a shit ton of cliffhangers. There were so many cliffhangers. And I understand that is a trope of the genre. And there's no hate to you, Richard Osman, because you wrote a fantastic book. But oh, my God, did it annoy the shit out of me. I I personally really like a cliffhanger. I would rather have a cliffhanger than a chapter that wraps up. Really? With a neat little bow. Because I am the sort of person who I think it's because I have ADHD. But like I will put down a book and genuinely forget about it sometimes if it's between chapters and like I'm not dying to know what's happening next. You know, like it's so easy for me to get halfway oh. through a book and stop reading it and genuinely forget that it exists. Really? Like, Interesting. It, is, it happens so much. And I, I usually come back to them eventually, but that's just me and how my brain works. Um, huh. So I find that cliffhangers keep me coming back, but I do understand the annoyance with them, especially because if you're just reading on like a work break yes, or somewhere where you I don't do. have much time and you have to stop and yeah. you're like, but I want to know. I, usually <laughs> I will read the end and then I'll read like the first few paragraphs of the next chapter because I have to know what happens so that I can stop reading because usually mm-hmm. I need to because I'm at work. But this book, it switches perspectives. So you yes. don't know what happens. Yeah, you'll get a cliffhanger <laughs> and then it'll be totally somebody else talking You're just like, and what the they won't know what's going on with the cliffhanger you just left off on. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. But anyways. It works. Obviously, I still really love it like a lot. 4.5. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Senior Detectives podcast. Please join us on our next episode. We're going to be covering Knives Out, which is the 2019 movie with uh, Daniel Craig and Ana de Armas and um, a million other people. It's one of those ensemble casts. If you haven't seen that movie, spoilers, we both really like it. Um, You should watch it. And then you can listen to us talk about it. Yes, come listen to us talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really like perfect little murder mystery with lots of little twists and turns. So we can't wait to talk about it and we will talk about it soon next time. Yeah. So I'm going to leave you with uh, the preface once again, because it takes on a whole new meaning now. Killing someone is easy. Hiding the body now. That's usually the hard part. That's how you get caught. I was lucky enough to stumble upon the right place though. The perfect place really. I come back from time to time just to make sure everything's still safe and sound. It always is, and I suppose it always will be. Sometimes I'll have a cigarette, which I know I shouldn't, but it's my only vice. See you next time! Bye-bye!